Hi, I'm Patrick McBriarty. And I'm Christopher Lynch. And together, we are the hosts of Windy Windy City City Historians. Historians. We will share and discuss Chicago history. And some great Chicago stories. Sponsored by Rapunzel. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. Created by two high school friends toward improving financial literacy with simulated financial trading competitions and scholarships. Rapunzel creates excitement and encourages financial education. Check out their free mobile app and the interviews of Brian and Miles in the press. R-A-P-U-N-Z-L. No E. So, Chris, we're here at the Waveland Island Studios. Yes, very happy to be here. To kick off episode 18, the year 1893, what does that bring to mind for you? Well, it's got to be the World's Fair, Patrick. Because in Chicago, we hosted the Columbian Exposition of That's that right. year. Which was on the, what, anniversary? Well, it was to celebrate the 400th anniversary of Columbus, but as you know from childhood, Patrick, the old saying, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Right. It wasn't 1493, so the 400th anniversary wouldn't have been 1893. They're a year off. It was 1892 would have been the 400th anniversary. Yes. But if I recall, there was some delays in making it happen, and so Chicago deferred till the following year to have the fair. That's right. And, you know, what's a year among friends? So... In any event, when we decided to put this podcast together and thinking about the World's Fair, we also thought about our friend and an author, Joe Gostaitis. Yeah, Joe wrote that wonderful book on just that year, 1893. And that was the thing that was interesting to us, is that rather than talk about the fair, although we'll mention it in this episode, there was a ton of other things going on that year. Yeah, very much so. So we thought it would be very cool as a precursor to an episode or two on the fair to see what else was going on in Chicago at that time. Right. Think of it as kind of a prelude to the fair. What conditions were like in Chicago as the world was arriving to Chicago. And Joe's going to get into that and what other pivotal moments seemed to occur also on that same year in Chicago. So let's get to the conversation we had with Joe. Let's do it. All right. This is the Windy City Historians podcast, and we've got with us Joe Gostaitis. Did I say that right? Yes. I look at all those vowels in there, and I think I'm going to goof this up. <laughs> and Chris was just earlier holding up Joe's book here on the Zoom call that we're doing. And give us the title, Chris. Sure. Chicago's Greatest Year, 1893, The White City and the Birth of a Modern Metropolis. So we figured Joe would be the best person for us to talk to a little bit about What else was going on in Chicago? Joe, what possessed you to write this great book? Yeah, right. That's where we should start. In the mid-19th century, there were several emerging cities in the Midwest. And they were competing to become what they called the capital of the Inland Empire. Cincinnati, St. Louis, Milwaukee, Chicago... Believe it or not, even Michigan City thought at one point they were ideally situated. By around 1900, it's obvious that this competition is over, that Chicago has won and has become the capital of the Inland Empire. So I wanted to explore why that happened. So I started making a list of important events in Chicago history. Railroad, the canal, this and that. And I organized this list by year, mm-hmm. chronologically. And then I, I noticed that 1893 just kept popping up. This happened in 1893. This happened, this happened. And that gave me the idea. Maybe if I just concentrate on one year in Chicago history, I'll be able to go in more depth on some of these subjects than, than other histories of Chicago can do because they take a broader look at it. So then I said, that's going to be my plan. After I 
decided that, I found even more things that are happening in 1893. Not only great, but it's kind of amazing that so many things happened at one time. Joe, did it seem like that was kind of a pivotal year for Chicago in that respect? Yeah, exactly. We like to think that today we live in fast-changing times where it's hard to keep up with what's going on and with technologies bringing new things all the time. I guess that's true, but then I think about people living in the early 1890s. Most people hardly knew what electricity was, and all these skyscrapers going up in Chicago and the other technological revolutions. I said, there's probably maybe even more. Things were changing even faster in the 1890s. Joe, you talked about the electricity. From your book, I learned that when farmers from Iowa or Nebraska walked along the Court of Honor at the World's Fair and saw it light up at night, it literally took their breath away. Well, a lot of people, and this has been recorded, that some of these country people who came to Chicago had never seen a light bulb. I can tell you that my grandmother, when she came to Chicago in the 1920s, had never seen a light bulb in Ireland. Really? Oh, really? I remember her telling me that. 1920s. I can understand, you know, several years before in 1893, I, that's totally believable to me. But now that they see just one light bulb, they saw thousands of light bulbs. Because this, as you know, this court of honor was illuminated at night. And it was dazzling. That's one example of the shock of new technology that people experience. And this was the court of honor in the White City for the World's Fair Columbian Exposition that happened in Chicago. Yeah, when you see the photographs of the White City, that's what you usually see. Yeah, it's the reflecting water. And then you have, is it the administration building? Joe, at the end, sort of the one focal the point. Yeah, that's the administration yeah. building. Yeah. And there's some wonderful, not only photographs, but paintings of that scene of the Court of Honor that oh, are... I have a collection of watercolors. I think Thomas Moran did one of them that's quite striking. He was an Englishman. He, he was the one that did all the watercolors of Yellowstone National Park that, when displayed in Washington, Congress set aside that land because of Moran's paintings. And he painted uh, the White City? He did. He did that administration building. I'll have to dig it up and send it to you because it's a spectacular painting. Yeah, I'd like to see it. So of all these different things that you found uh, in the research and the book, were there a couple that really stood out you know, beyond the World's Fair that happened? Or was there a favorite of yours? One of the amazing coincidences that really surprised me, which shows you how condensed the history could be in 1893. I have a chapter on Chicago writers who I say were crucial to what we call urban literature, and the birth of urban literature. The great American writers of the 19th century, or somebody like Mark Twain, was obviously a great writer and a genius, but he didn't write about cities. He wrote about what he knew about his boyhood and other things like that. Same with most of the other writers. Around the 1890s, writers started to realize that there was a great subject to be had in writing about urban life. Three Chicago writers were, in my view, pivotal in this development. One was George Ade, who's most famous for his book, Fables and Slang. Then Lee Peter Dunn, who wrote about an Irish bartender called Mr. Dooley. His essays were extremely famous at the time. And it's on to read today. Teddy Roosevelt was a big fan of Mr. Dooley. Was he? <laughs> yes. It doesn't surprise me. And the third was a novelist named Henry Blake Fuller, who's not well known today. But in his time, he was considered a giant. He wrote novels about urban life. But the amazing coincidence was that all three of these writers published their breakthrough works in the same year, 1893. Oh, okay. So I, you know, I, I couldn't resist. So I wrote a chapter on these three writers. <laughs> well, you're right about Mr. Dooley, Joe, because Dunn was writing in the vernacular 
he didn't know what the hell this famous bartender was saying because it was pretty dense. Yeah, unfortunately, it's hard for people to read today because it's a written in the Irish brogue the way he heard it, which is unfortunate because it is worth trying because they can be very funny. And not only funny, but wise, insightful. I mean, mm. he's, the, he's the man who's invented the term politics ain't beanbag. That's right. <laughs> Do we know where his fictional tavern was? Was it down in uh, the stockyard? It was on Archie Road. Archie Road. That's what he called um, Archer Avenue. Right. Yeah. It was in Bridgeport somewhere. Yeah, right by yeah. the river, more or less. And interesting, I was just looking up Fuller and the, the book that you referred to that he wrote in, in 1893, it was called The Cliff Dwellers. Yeah. Which is ironic given that all three of us are members of the Midland Authors. And we meet at the Cliff Dwellers. Right, which is at, was it 200 South Michigan Avenue up on the top floor? Previously, it met in the uh, orchestra building. Mm. And there's a restaurant on the fifth floor, which is the old Cliff Dwellers Club. Okay. That's right, because that author's group was around back in the day when yeah. he was around. And... Yeah. Cliff Dwellers is the novel. It came first for the name of the, of the building. So, Chris, we should break in here. We talked about the Cliff Dwellers Club. Yes, and both you and I have been to the Cliff Dwellers Club. It's on Michigan Avenue, south of the Art Institute, and it overlooks unbelievable view of downtown. And the lakefront. That's right. Because we are part of the Society of Midland Authors yes. that meets there, used to be once a month on Tuesdays, but with COVID, all bets are off, although they do have occasional events. And the thing we talked about a moment ago was that there was a book also called The Cliff Dwellers by a Chicago author that came out prior to that name being used for the club. After we recorded the initial interview, Joe sent us an email from his book, quote, In 1907, Hamlin Garland spearheaded the establishment of a cultural association called The Cliff Dwellers. In parens, it still exists. Despite the name, Fuller who was the author of that book, Cliff Dwellers, was not associated with the group and was never a member. Although Hamlin and others claim that the name was taken not from Fuller's novel, but from, from the Anastasi dwellings in the Southwest, it's difficult to imagine that they did not have Fuller's book somewhere in the back of their mind. Chris, we further learned from Robert Lorzell's history of the Society of Midland Authors, that the Cliff Dwellers Club, which started in 1907, was originally called the Attic Club and changed its name to the Cliff Dwellers in 1909. He also found an interesting interchange between Garland and Fuller, where Garland said he had told Fuller, quote, it isn't a matter of 10 years or your lifetime, Fuller. We are building something in this club which will be alive and jocund when you and I are gone. Jocund apparently means cheerful and lighthearted. And I want its name to be characteristic of Chicago and a reminder of you and your first fictional study of Chicago life. Fuller replied, quote, Nobody will want to be reminded of me, unquote, and refused to join the club. Fuller would also not join the Society of Midland Authors either. So anyway, all right, back to Joe and our interview. Well, I was fascinated that two of the three institutions that we treasure in Chicago, I'm talking about the Field Museum, the Art Institute, and the Museum of Science Industry, all of them, except for the field, which has a tangential connection to the Columbian Exposition, emerged from this year, 1893. Yeah. Uh, as you know, Art Institute was originally used as a building in conjunction with the fair as a place to hold lectures and meetings. Although it was understood that it would be an art museum after the fair. Well, I learned from your book that these Chicago capitalists, 
they didn't do this for free. I think the Art Institute has paid $200,000 to host the Parliament of Religions. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Of course. Mr. Marshall wasn't going to, you know, these guys got rich for a reason. <laughs> Mr. Ryerson and Mr. Hutchinson, they seemed to know what they were doing when they built the Art Institute. And in your book, one of the things I learned was about the Parliament of Religions that took place on September 11th, 1893 at the Art Institute. Yeah, I thought it was interesting that one of the highlights was uh, Ananda. He introduced yoga to the United States at the 1893 Columbia Exposition in a presentation at what is now the Art Institute, but was then hosting something called the Parliament of World Religions. Yeah, it was the first time that Islam was introduced to an American audience, and certainly the first time that Hinduism was Yeah, through him. And then I was reading that Kananda came from Calcutta to Chicago, obviously, you know, by boat. And then when he got to California, he took a boxcar. He had no money with him. And apparently he must have been very charismatic because... He shows up at the Art Institute there. He gives a two-minute introduction to himself and gets a standing ovation just from his introduction. And then he became the darling of the United States. And he went to Harvard a couple years later, and he gave one talk at Harvard. And the Harvard faculty offered him a chair in Eastern philosophy based on his one talk. And he did have some magnetism, I guess. I mean, I don't do yoga. It's too hard for me. But for a lot of people in this country, I think that his appearance at 1893 Exposition was one of the big events of that year. Because yoga is, you know, as you know, huge business. Right. Yeah. Well, I learned from your book that it's a $4 billion industry. There you go. You can also imagine the novelty of having somebody come all the way from Calcutta to Chicago, too, especially in that day. Well, there's kind of a joke about that. When Mark Twain went around the world, he went to Calcutta and he met a holy man. And Mark Twain said he was from the United States. And Twain writes that he said to him, ah, Chicago, America, the holy city, because of this parliament of religions. But I think Twain was just sort of making it a joke because he knew Chicago and he knew it was, it was not a holy me. city. It was the gray city, right, Joe? Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, what do you mean by the gray city, Joe? Well, that was when I was writing about the tugboat war. That ah. The gray city is the, the opposite of the white city. It's the polluted city. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues at that time in Chicago was the air pollution caused by this burning of soft coal. And there are some real horror stories about what it was like. You had to keep your windows open in the summer because it was hot. And if you were a dressmaker or something, all your stuff would get coated with coal dust and soot. So there were a lot of complaints and a lot of arguments about how this could be fixed. But visitors to Chicago always commented on the smoke in the air. There are some pretty dramatic photographs. Well, it was interesting in doing research for my book on the Chicago River Bridges in that period big problem was the bridges were mostly wood and iron. Steel was starting to come mm-hmm. commercially available, but most of the bridges weren't made out of that yet. Mm-hmm. And the iron would get uh, destroyed because of the sulfur in the smoke from the coal. Really? And mixed with water and created sulfuric acid, which would eat the metal away. They have to replace it? It was a serious problem for the city of Chicago where it was a regular maintenance issue. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't paint the iron mm-hmm. or protect it in some way, then that acid would not only eat the paint, but then go down into the metal and cause problems with the bridges and they'd have to replace or repair them much more mm-hmm. frequently than they would otherwise. Mm-hmm. Somewhat similar, but not nearly as bad as say, the salt on the roads today that caused the majority of the deterioration of the bridges over time. Oh yeah, of course. But you can imagine sulfuric acid would be much more caustic to the bridges. Yeah. Well, I thought it was interesting that the tugboats were kind of picked out by the city as the enemy because of their uh, belching smokestacks. But I learned from your book, the tugboat operators 
pretty much fought off the city and well, won. They actually won that battle. Well, remember, the ships coming in and out of the Chicago River and Harbor were really the lifeblood of the city. I mean, that was still yeah. one of the best ways to move goods and services. I mean, the railroads yeah. were decent, but shipping was still less expensive. Yeah. And the industry was all along no, you're, the you're south right. and, and north branches of the river, all the heavy industry. So those tugs were coming in and out of there several times an hour. You'd have multiple tugs going through with pulling ships because the bridges would open two, three, sometimes four times an hour during the day. So wow. there was going to be one or more tugs with them bringing the boats in and out of the, the river. You know, because downtown Chicago is not a port anymore. The port has been moved. It's easy to forget that in those days it was a port and there were mostly freight ships coming in and unloading lots of stuff. Right. I learned from your book, Joe, that people had to have specially made drawers for garments and whatnot so they could wrap the clothing in, in this material and put it in the drawer because of that uh, coal dust. Mm -hmm. hmm. It's just one of the things we don't think about in the 21st century. We, it just doesn't occur to us that, you know, the buildings aren't black from the soot. Yeah. Although when I was in Spain once, they don't have catalytic converters, I discovered, because I would wake up in the morning and there'd be a thin layer of dust. It looked like coal dust. It, it wasn't. Like a soot or something, right? Soot. It was on the hood of the car every morning. Huh. which was disgusting. Well, another source of smoke pollution were, the, were the, of course, the railroads. Right. Especially the ones that came in along the lake, the Illinois Central and maybe a few others, DNO. There was a movement in the early 20th century to do something about strange smoke because they were making everything dirty in the houses, which is another reminder of something that's different now because in the summer, we keep the windows closed. Because we have air conditioning. Yeah. Before air conditioning, you had to keep the windows open as much as you possibly could. And mm -hmm. if a steam locomotive is coming by your window, you got a problem. You're going to have to wash your sheets. Even today, occasionally, when I have the windows open you know, in my condo, yeah. I look at the window sills and there'll be a little bit of city dust. Sure. The air is better today, but it's not clean. Right, right. Amazing. The Art Institute looks naked where it is there on Michigan Avenue because there's mm. nothing around it. You're referring to the, the picture I have when it opened. Yes. There's nothing there. There's nothing there. And then, you know, we all know the story about Mr. Ward, Montgomery Ward. Mm -hmm. I did not realize that the Art Institute was part of that battle. Yeah. He didn't want it there. To protect the lakefronts. For people who don't know, Aaron Montgomery Ward, the founder of the great mail order retail firm, was dedicated to the idea that the lakefront should be free of any buildings at all, which was in, as Patrick, I'm sure, well knows, that original map of Chicago. Yeah, from 1836. 1836. As a notation on the lakefront that says forever free. Mm -hmm. Now, we have to realize that Michigan Avenue was basically the beach. I mean, that's kind of where... This is true, yeah. A lot of that is landfill. A lot of the rubble from the Chicago fire was pushed into the lake. And I learned from your book that it was not named Grand Park till I think, about 1900 or so. Yeah, had been done for 20 years. I'm not sure why it took so long. I don't remember the exact date. Yeah, I thought that was interesting that it kind of seemed like it had always been Grand Park. Nope, <laughs> because it, it goes way back. Well, and that landfill was made a lot easier, too, because the Illinois Central, thanks to the young attorney. Stephen Douglas brought the Illinois Central to Chicago and Abraham Lincoln defended it. That's it. Yeah. But they ran a pier along the lakefront and then there was a lagoon behind it, which is now where Grant Park is. That's right. There were tracks out in the lake, right? Joe, I think one of my favorite stories in your book is about Edwin Eyre, who had the gall to go to Marshall Field and ask him <laughs> for a million dollars for a museum to host the artifacts that needed to be placed somewhere after the fair left. And basically, 
Mr. Ayer went to Marshall Field, Mr. Marshall Field at the store on State Street. Mr. Field said, I'm busy. What do you want? And Ayer said, I just need 15 minutes of your time. And Field said, okay, fine. I think he said, if I can't talk you out of a million dollars in 15 minutes, I'm not good to you yeah. either. <laughs> right. And then he said, I'm quoting from your book. He tells Field, quote, you can sell dry goods until hell freezes over. You can send it on the ice until it melts. And in 25 years, you'll be absolutely forgotten. You have an opportunity here that has been vouchsafed to very few people on earth. And then he asked him to come to the fair with him. And they did the next day. And then he returned to Marshall Fields and he gave him a check for a million dollars. Yeah. And I don't remember exactly where I found that story, but it was it was not in a book. It was in some article that Ayer wrote after this happened. Quite a find. I'm not sure anybody else ever used that story. But he was friends with Fields before that. They used to go play golf together. But you get a feeling for the kind of character that Field was. You know, get out of my office. And then, you know, once he listens for a while, you know, you could get through to him. You talk about the importance of anthropology in this era. And I think it wasn't it Frederick Ward Putnam that was yeah. the leading figure in that. Yeah. Putnam was probably the most famous anthropologist in the country at the time. So he, he got the job of collecting and acquiring the exhibit for the anthropology building. And he had a huge team of researchers that went out and they grabbed all kinds of things. I mean, they had a Mayan temple that they brought from Mexico in pieces. Wow. Yeah, and, and you have pictures of that in, in your book, and it's yeah. I couldn't believe it when I was looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, those guys were real, uh, they were hard workers. But um, most of his, what interested him was the uh, anthropology of the Americas. So the exhibits were heavy on that. Like you said, it was an enormous collection and wondered what to do with it after the fair was over. He said, we've got all this stuff in Chicago. We can't sell it or let somebody else take it away. And if you go to the Field Museum now, you'll, you'll see some of those same objects in special cases that were collected for the Columbian Exposition. And I remember it was called the Field Columbian Museum, I believe. Mm -hmm. Fields funded the museum, and then I believe after he died, I think another eight million went to the museum. And the Tribune wrote, quote, one of the greatest features to welcome the great-great-grandchildren of those who now, from the grounds at Jackson Park, when Chicago held another centennial Basically, they realized this was a great museum and people in 100 years would come here, and they do, to see Sue, the dinosaur, and other things. Yeah. It's one of the great museums in the world. And Edward Eyre was right. Marshall Fields, I mean, his name lives on. His, it's, not his even store, on the, it's not even on the store anymore, right? Right. The store is Macy's now, and, yeah. and, and so Eyre was right. He gave him immortality. Yeah. And I get the feeling Macy's regrets usurping that brand in Chicago because I think it's lost its luster and they haven't been able to uh, oh. quite meet no, it's not, no. the same level of you know, patronage that Fields did. Marshall Field was such an institution. and People not just would come from other parts of Chicago or the suburbs, people from all over the country to go. They all went to Marshall Fields. Give the lady what she wants. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, at railroad stations, there are there are comments from people who used to see people getting on the train with these green shopping bags. They all went to Marshall Fields. They were visitors from out of town. Mm -hmm. Nobody does that, goes yeah. to Chicago to go to Macy's. Well, the former Chicagoans do to get the Frango Mints. Yeah. Well, there you got that. That's <laughs> thank goodness. Thank goodness you can still get the Frango. Yes. And then I know that gentleman that worked for Field. He went off to England and he started Selfridges, which was the Macy's Marshall Fields of England and is hugely popular even today. Yeah, as far as I know, it's a very successful story. And there was a PBS series called Selfridges as well. Yeah, I watched it. 
Yeah, with Jeremy Pivot, who was a Chicagoan, which was great. One of the episodes shows that the English in that era of 1906 and whatnot, if you wanted to buy something, you didn't get to see it or touch it. You just go up and say, I'd like a tie, and they open a box and hand it to you, and that was it. Whereas Saltridge's would let you try it on and feel the material, and, and if you didn't like it, you could return it. And to the English, this was unimaginable. Yeah. These are things that he learned working for Marshall Field. The English didn't quite know what to make of them until the King of England showed up and went shopping at Suffrages. Then (laughs) then it was all right. Yeah, darn right. (laughs) Well, I imagine in that day and age, there was not a lot of choices in ties anyway. It was sort of either black or white, right? Pretty pretty much. There's probably always somebody that's going to peacock or have be more of a dandy that has some different colored ties but in the 1890s you yeah i think you, you are right it's black and white joe tell us about that other genius julius rosenwald oh yeah speaking of the three great museums in chicago the palace of fine arts maybe yeah. we could talk about that yeah I, I have a chapter on sears and roebuck which was incorporated in 1893 Richard Sears got a partner, Alva Roebuck, and they gave their names to the company. Roebuck really didn't have a lot to do with it, didn't stay very long. Sears himself, his health was not that good. So eventually, his vice president, Julius Rosenwald, took over the company. Had a lot to do with Sears expanding it out of the mail order business into running department stores. Anyhow, Rosenwald became an enormous philanthropist, gave away, I forget the figure, but millions and millions of dollars. One of his enterprises was to build schools in the South for, for Black children. But in Chicago, he's probably best known for rescuing the Palace of Fine Arts from the um, Columbian Exposition, because this was the building that held all the art exhibits, the paintings because it was holding these very expensive treasures it was made out of stone which the other buildings were not they were not meant to be permanent the palace of fine arts after the fair was over the anthropology exhibits went there but then they moved to the field museum and that was built around 1920 and so the palace of fine arts this great big beautiful building was empty not well maintained and there was debate on what to do with it. Maybe even they should be tear it down. There were very discussions about what they could make do with it, make a school, whatever. Well, Julius Rosenwald had gone to Munich a few years before, and he saw the fascinating institution called the Deutsches Music Museum, which was a museum of technology and science. That was in Munich, wasn't it, Joe? Munich? Yeah. It's still there. Apparently, it's a very popular museum. Julius Rosenwald's son just loved the place and kept saying, can we go back? Can we go back? Julius Rosenwald decided that Chicago needed a museum like that. So when he got back to Chicago, he said, well, that's what we're going to do with the fine arts building. We're going to make a museum of science and industry. I don't remember how much money he contributed to it, but he was the one that made it possible to renovate the building, which needed a lot of work. And gather the exhibits for the what is now an extremely popular Museum of Science and Industry. It was suggested that it should be called the Rosenwald Museum of Science and Industry, but he had. It's interesting, too, that I believe it was the Palace of Fine Arts was designed by Atwood. Charles Miller Atwood, correct. And I believe the great artist St. Gaudens said it was the most beautiful building he'd ever seen in his life. Yeah. Aesthetically perfect. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's how it was seen at the time. St. Gaudens said that, but there were other people who would, thought it was beautiful. So, yeah, it's frightening to think that it could have been torn down. But, Joe, the angle that you and I and Patrick see from Lakeshore Drive, you know, you, you make that turn and then it's there in the entrance. That's not what the people of the, at the World's Fair saw. They saw the back of it, right? They saw the other side. Other side, yes because it was on the lagoon. Right. Right. 
there's still part of that lagoon on the back side of it, which nobody really notices nowadays the way it's been landscaped and the roads are. Exactly. But in those days, you were coming from the fair, which was south of the museum. You could get a boat on the lagoon and somebody would take you over to the Palace of Fine Arts. It was, wasn't the only way to get there, but you can imagine coming out of that fair and then standing on the lagoon and seeing this building on the other side. That's really the way to look at it. That's the way it was intended to be seen. Well, and the architecture is very inviting because there's this long set of steps right down to the water's edge, elevating you up into the museum. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's a natural for yeah. people coming along and, yeah. and going up into the museum. Yeah. And I remember the pillars that were um, Greek women. Mm-hmm. I know they're Greek because when I saw the Parthenon a long time ago, I saw those women on the Parthenon. I said, okay, now I know where they got it. Now I know where it came from. (laughs) But you know what? Julius uh, Rosenwald's son, William, was absolutely right. Because when I was a kid and we would go there, it was unbelievable to see the coal mine and the chicks. Yeah, the baby chicks hatching. Oh, my God, to be eight years old in that museum, it was unbelievable. My father took me once a year, and it was one of the highlights of the year mm-hmm. to go to the Museum of Science. And the coal mine was probably everybody's favorite. I went there a couple of years ago with my niece and nephews, and I had not been in there. I'd wanted to and had just never done it. And it was extremely well done. And then found out that later, the original sort of tour guides for that were men that had worked in the mine that they got some of the equipment from in Southern Illinois. Boy, really? And it was some mines that were basically kind of put out of business in the thirties. Yeah. yeah. And then a few of the sort of old timers as they kind of were described, if I recall, yeah, would, would then give the tour to the kids to give them a sense of what it was really like to be down there. It's a special place. And then Joe, I think one of the trains that's in the museum is, from the 1893 World's Fair. It's so 999, New York Central. I actually wrote an essay on that for a magazine. It was the fastest train of its time. It went uh, like, a, I think, 112 miles per hour. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Steam engine. It's a steam, yeah, steam locomotive. Yeah. Yeah. The driving wheels on that locomotive were seven feet high. <laughs> wow. Gives, yeah, so it was built to go fast. And then, of course, 40 years later was Century of Progress Fair, and they had that train, the Zephyr, yeah. which is also with science and industry. Of course, it looks like a toaster. The Burlington Zephyr. Yeah. Joe, I couldn't believe that in your book, there's a chapter on the Chicago hot dog. <laughs> and I was delighted to read that because it made me very hungry and I had to go out and get a Chicago hot dog. Where did you go? I go to this place called Wolfie's on Peterson. Wolfie's is famous. They do a good dog there. When I was doing the research on the Columbian Exposition, came across the fact that there was a hot dog stand outside one of the entrance gates. We're not sure which one. And from that hot dog stand became the company Vienna Beef, the owner of that hot dog stand was a man named Samuel Adani, who was an immigrant from Hungary in Vienna. And this is the man who invented Vienna beef, practically any hot dog stand in Chicago, and there are thousands of them. Mm-hmm. Chances are that's the hot dog you're going to find. Yeah. yeah, that's the hometown hot dog brand here in Chicago in the Midwest. You might find one called Red Hot Chicago, but that's also made by Vienna beef. And... Now, let's face it, the Chicago hot dog is famous. It's famous all over the the country. So I thought this might be something a little lighter, but an interesting bit of information because Ladani and his partner did very well selling hot dogs outside the Columbian Exposition, opened a shop, sold hot dogs there, and then started wholesaling them. And the Vienna beef just grew into what it is today, the Chicago institution. Well, if you think about it, a Chicago dog is basically like a like a garden on your hot dog, right? 
I mean, it's drag it through the garden, right? Right, and that's the motto of Chicago: herbs and orto, city in a garden. So it's oh, that's the garden they're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, probably not. It's, it's <laughs> onions and relish and a pickle. Sometimes a wedge of tomato and yeah. Don't forget that, yeah. And hold the ketchup. And we've had this debate, Chris. I am not a Chicago and I I like ketchup on my hot dog. Yeah. Which um, most people find sacrilegious if they're from Chicago. It's a thing about Chicago hot dog mavens that they just you know love to put down ketchup. I don't care what you put on your hot dog, frankly. <laughs> You know how every state had an exhibit? The tamale, which, believe it or not, when we think of tamale, we think of Mexico. But tamales have been in Chicago since 1893 because gentlemen from Los Angeles came to the World's Fair and sold them as part of the California presentation where these gentlemen wearing these sombreros selling tamales. I had no idea the tamale had been here that long in Chicago. That's covered in my next book about Chicago and World War I. I talk about the tamale vendors in Chicago. and There were so many of them in the 1890s that they had something called a tamale war. Really? Sounds messy. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds delicious. (laughs) Messy and tasty at the same time. No, but you're right. There was a representative of Mexico came to the Columbian Exposition and was surprised to find vendors selling tamales on the streets of Chicago. He bought 10 for a dollar. And for you know the younger listeners, if you imagine in the 1890s, California still very much had close ties to its Spanish origins. Sure. With all the Spanish towns and missions that were there, because that was under Spanish control for a long time. Oh, yeah. You know, it was the last couple of decades that they had established major cities in California because of the gold rush. Well, Texas also had very strong ties to Mexico at that time. Right. So it's, it wasn't the new age yoga, artsy, fartsy, California, no. Silicon Valley that we know today. No, 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 no. And it's just interesting how expanding on a tamale, I recently was in Mississippi. They have a real tamale culture in Mississippi because immigrants from Mexico, and they would bring variations of the tamale to the port towns of Mississippi. And so there's literally a tamale trail in Mississippi where people go up and down. I've been to Mississippi a couple of times. I was surprised to find out there's tamales. Yes. I figured you're going to find barbecue. Their variation is they don't have it in a husk or anything. They have it in kind of a tube, like almost like a hot dog. They're smaller than the Mexican tamales. Right. They are smaller than the Mexicans, yeah. There is a place in Wicker Park that sells Mississippi tamales. Oh, called the Delta. I've actually scoped out that restaurant. You're right, it's the Delta. And if we're talking about hot dogs and tamales, and but hot dogs in particular, Joe, you also mentioned the Cubs in 1893. There, yeah. Sounds like there's a good story there. What a surprise that was. You know, when I wrote the book, I said, when the Cubs last won the World Series in 1908, Mm-hmm. It wasn't in Wrigley Field, which a lot of people thought at the time. Well, its book is out of date, obviously, because it's not when the Cubs last won the World Series. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the Cubs in 1908, when they won the World Series, did not play in Wrigley Field, which wasn't built until 1914. They played in a ballpark called West Side Grounds, which opened in 1893. Well, what a surprise that was find that the Cubs Park was built in 1893. It was now where the medical center is on Ashland and Damon, south of the expressway. Oh, like Rush Presbyterian. Exactly. That's where it was. There's a plaque on one of the buildings there to say that was the old West Side grounds. So it was an interesting ballpark in many ways, but one of the stories is that even then, There were medical buildings around the ballpark in those days. And one of them was a psychiatric institute, which is still there, although it's in a different location. And the psychiatric institute was just beyond the left field seats. So the story was that 
if you say somebody is out in left field, it means he should be in the psychiatric institute. <laughs> <laughs> and that guy is out in left field. That's interesting that that could be the actual origin of that phrase. And apparently it's a Chicago sports writer invented the term southpaw for the pitchers in uh, Westside Park because the lefty's hands was facing south. Mm, interesting. I am a southpaw, so that makes me relate to that story because yeah, they, I've been called that many a times in my life. I'm a lefty too, and I can remember my dad having fun with me in front of his friends when I was a kid, and they had me do some sweeping in the garage while they were grilling out. And they said, you're doing it wrong. And they'd show me. And then I'd take the broom. And of course, I'd switch hands and sweep. And I, I'm i doing the same thing that they're doing, as far as I could tell as a kid. Right. And they'd say, no, they must this must have gone on for three or four times until I finally dawned on me. They were making fun of the fact that I was doing it left-handed versus right-handed, which on a push broom makes really no difference at all. But they, they had fun with me on it. I didn't think so. <laughs> You know, Joe, before we were talking about the tamale influence of the World's Fair, well, there's another Mexican influence I learned about in your book, and that is chewing gum, which I believe was introduced. (laughs) Was it the Mayans? That human beings have been chewing on sticky, gummy things goes way back to Neolithic times, but usually it was gum from a tree. Mm. The Mayans chewed on something called chicle which is a more familiar term because that's used in gum. I mean, we've all probably seen chiclets. Yeah. yeah. I wondered where that name came from. Yeah, it comes from the, the Mayan word chicle, which is a, a gum from a tree. And that was the substance that was used by Wrigley and all the other gum makers to make the gum we have. And it is an interesting story that Santa Ana, famous enemy in American history because of the Alamo, survived for decades after that battle. He got kicked out of the head of Mexico and decided to try to sell chicle in the United States. He didn't want to have any idea that people would want to chew it. He thought it could be a substitute for rubber. He brought it to the United States for some, I forget the guy's name, decided it could be used better for chewing gum. Because before that, they were using spruce gum Oh, that was Thomas Adams, I think. Is that who, the name? Thomas, Thomas Adams. Adams. Yeah. yeah, Thomas Adams, yeah. And yeah, it wasn't good for making rubber, but it was certainly good for chewing on if you put a little sugar in it and tweaked it this, different ways. With other flavors like spearmint or mint? or oh, you know, We go from the Alamo to the Wrigley Building. Wow. And I think you said, Joe, in the book that it was Adams that saw a girl order some wax in a drugstore to, just to oh. chew on it. I believe he was like, well, I can improve on that. Yeah, yeah. Now, how did William Wrigley get involved with it? Wrigley was from uh, Pennsylvania, and his father had a soap business. Sent Wrigley to Chicago to open up a branch of these Wrigley soap flakes. And in order to sell his product, he would give away premiums. So if you buy, you know, 50 boxes of my soap, I'll throw in whatever. He would maybe give you a lamp or something. He didn't invent chewing gum. It had been around for a while. So he started throwing in chewing gum, which he had made for him by some chewing gum manufacturer. And the people who were buying his soap said, you know what? Your soap's not that great, but we sure like your chewing gum. (laughs) (laughs) Tastes better than the soap. (laughs) So he said, okay. So he finally realized maybe he should get out of the soap business and get into the chewing gum business. And in 1893, he invented not one, but two kinds of chewing gum, juicy fruit and spearmint. Oh, man, I love both of those. (laughs) Well, you're a real Chicagoan. Good for you. I remember the ads, the double mints. You know, they had the twins. They'd always have twins. Double mint gum, you know. Double your flavor, double your fun. Yeah. Double your fun, right, right. And wasn't it he, Joe, that had that famous saying? He said, anybody can make gum. Selling it's the problem. Yeah, right. And, you know, Wrigley and Richard Sears are similar in that 
one of the major keys to their success. They invested very heavily in advertising. I mean, there were a dozen other gum manufacturers in the country, but really just advertised the hell out of that gum. Very ingenious kinds of billboards he would use and magazine ads. His advertising budget was one of the highest advertising budgets of any company in, in those days. So that's what put him over the top, made him a household word. Wasn't one of his competitors, I believe it was the American Chickley Company. You mentioned Chickley. I remember right. It was more of a conglomerate okay. of chewing gum manufacturers. They got together to um, you know, set prices and everything. Yeah, they were Wrigley's main competitor. The fact that you and I can hum their <laughs> government gum ad I mean, I haven't seen that on TV in probably 20 years. The fact that we actually know it, it just shows that advertising works. It made an impression. Oh, sure. You know, I was surprised to learn that northern Indiana and southern Michigan at one time were covered with mint fields. You could drive mm -hmm. for miles through miles of mint fields. These were all owned by Wrigley, who grew the mint to make his gum. Interesting. He made so much money. Isn't there... 130-foot tower in Catalina Island in California built by the Wrigley fortune? Wrigley owned Catalina. He, he owned the whole island. Oh, well, here we go. And the Cubs used to practice there. That's right. They did their spring training in Catalina. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I haven't been to Catalina. I'd like to go because it has a very strong Wrigley connection, has the tower and the hotel that he built there. It's supposed to be beautiful. It, Wrigley, as I mentioned in the book, was uh, also an athlete himself. He used to win medals in swimming and things like that. So he really wanted a place to go in the summer so he could be active. And so he, Catalina, for some strange reason, was for sale. And he bought it. Wow. Well, but it's interesting. I mean, he was going out to Catalina before you could jump on your Learjet. Yeah. That was quite a haul in oh, his yeah. era. It was probably a pleasant couple of days on the train if you have a private car. Sure. Which I'm sure he did. Yeah, and I'm sure he did. And you get to Los Angeles and get on your yacht. I don't think it was too hard on him. So, Joe, here's the connection here. Um, so my family had an aviation business for a long time yeah. in Midway Airport called Monarch Air Service. And the Wrigley Company was one of our clients. They kept their jet in our hangar. Oh. And when I was a kid, the pilot let me go onto this private jet. And there was a button on the console where the CEO would sit, whatever. And the pilot said, go ahead and hit that button. And a stick of gum shot out of it. No. I'm not making that up. Now, as a 10-year-old, do you know how many times I hit that button? That's so cool, right? Isn't that amazing? That is a great story. Great story. Well, this would be the 1970s. I had forgotten it until you, you mentioned it, and then I, it just came back to me. And of course, you know, Wrigley Field, we all know Wrigley Field and the Cub connection, but the Wrigleys haven't owned the Cubs for quite a while. Oh, yeah. I don't even remember when they sold the Cubs, but it was a long time ago because the Tribune had it for decades. So, Chris, we should break in here. I mean, great story about the button on the Wrigley plane. Yes. And one of the questions that we were talking about in the interview was, who was in charge of the Wrigley company at that point in the 1970s? Well, that would be William Wrigley III, who was actually the grandson of William Wrigley, the one we're talking about. Right. Because if I understand it, there's William Wrigley Sr., who's in Philadelphia, that sends his son, William Wrigley Jr., to Chicago to open up and sell snowflakes, or snowflakes, sell <laughs> soapflakes. Selling snow to Eskimos? That's right. So William Wrigley III, and his father was Philip Wrigley, actually, who was held the company in between the William Wrigley Jr. and William Wrigley III. And uh, didn't William Wrigley III sell the Cubs to the Tribune? He did. He did. And we looked that up, and that was in 1981 that okay. that happened. Just giving a little more historic background on the Wrigley Company and, and the Cubs. So, Well, one other thing, Patrick, is going back to my experience on that private plane, that jet, you got to sell a lot of gum to afford a private jet. 
So it just goes to show that the Wrigley family was very good at selling gum. That's right. That was quite a company that William Wrigley Jr. had built. Yes, and a wonderful building downtown. All right, so let's get back to Joe and our interview. Tell us about Frances Willard. Frances Willard, she was the head of the WCTU, the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the great prohibition movement of the period. But Frances Willard was also a great reformer. She was in favor of a lot of progressive legislation. When she was 53 years old, she didn't feel too well, and she decided to learn to ride a bicycle for her for health reasons. And I tell the story in order to talk about Chicago being the bicycle capital of the world. In the 1890s, there was a huge bicycle craze. Most of the bicycles in the United States were built in or near Chicago. Of course, Schwinn being one of the big manufacturers. Schwinn was probably the only one that still exists. But it was also considered at the time a great development, a great force in women's liberation. Because uh, in order for women to ride bicycles, they had to undergo a certain dress reform. They had to wear clothes that was not restrictive. Corsets were out, long dresses were out. They started wearing bloomers and knickers and things like that. Feminists of the period considered bicycle to be one of the most liberating things for women. That's why I told the story of Francis Willard, who learned to ride a bicycle in 1893. Oh, cool. Because I'm a big cyclist, so I, I love I know biking around Chicago. So that's a neat... You know, Chicago's bicycle history is pretty interesting. There's a lot to learn about that. There's a book in there somewhere, Patrick, if you want to get going on it. Well, actually, a couple of years ago, I met a bike racer from the Triple X team that's here in Chicago. And I can't remember Chris's last name, but he did a book on the history of bicycling in Chicago. Really? Like in Arcadia Press with some a lot of images and yeah, yeah, some yeah. history. Uh-huh. And he'll regularly do some talks here and there about bicycle history. Huh. I will get that. My daughter goes to school in Dayton, Ohio, so I've been going to a lot of Wright Brothers sites. And I went to their bicycle shop, and I saw one of their bicycles. There's only about four in existence. And those tires are pretty thick. <laughs> it's not what you think. As When we think of a bicycle, it's Francis Willard must have been in shape because he had to be pretty tough to do it. She, I don't know. She, somehow she did it. Her bicycle still exists. It's at her home in Evanston. So her home in Evanston is a museum. Interesting. You can go take a look at it. Oh, okay. I didn't know you could see that. That'd be fun to go up there. Yeah. Well, well thank you, Joe. It's really nice talking to you guys. Well, it's, it's really a great so, book and, and really fun to read. Yes. And I learned quite a bit from it. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure as always. Hopefully the listeners will pick up a copy of your book as well. I'll see you around. All right. Thanks so much, Joe. Hey. Talk to you soon. Take care, Joe. Bye-bye. Well, Chris, this concludes episode 18, the year 1893. Well, Patrick, I want to run out and get some tamales and a Chicago hot dog, Vienna beef, and I want to chew some gum. (laughs) We, We could almost make this our food episode. I am totally inspired and hungry. Well, maybe those will be the snacks that you'll need for the next episode or two where we're going to dig into the Chicago's World's Fair of 1893. Or as we would say on this program, Patrick, the third star. That's right. Yeah. We've covered the first two, Fort Dearborn and the Chicago Fire, and now we're approaching the third. And you seem to think with the couple interviews we've done already, this third star will have a part one and two. I think so, because anytime you look at this topic, it's really like scraping the glacier. It's so big and massive that there's no way to really get your head around it. You started to do some research in preparation for this. Yeah. And how many books do you have at your house that you're leaping through? I have a dozen, and each one's a rabbit hole. You just pull a thread, and it just keeps going. It's that inspiring. Cool. So that's why we might have to break it into a couple episodes. Anyhow, you can look forward to those next couple episodes. Where we interview Paul Dorica from the Newberry Library and Jeff Nichols from the Chicago Reader, who both have great knowledge about the World's Fair. Well, I'm looking forward to it. All right. 
audio editing by Christopher Lynch and Patrick Briarty at the Waveland Island Studios. And special thanks to Jill Hogginson for the idea and branding assistance and Nate Kennedy for technical support and specking our audio equipment. Thank you for listening to the Windy City Historians Podcast.